Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we interview the founders, entrepreneurs, and investors shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem of Asia. Today, we have an interesting episode for you guys. Even though we should be around episode five at this point, I'm naming this episode The Prologue. Kevin Hung, our guest from episode one, has kindly helped to interview myself, the founder of Entrepreneurs of Asia. In this episode, I discuss why I started Entrepreneurs of Asia and my early thoughts on the format and style. Ironically, I talk about focusing on quality, but I do have to warn you, the audio setup was imbalanced for this episode, and Kevin's voice will be much quieter. We do apologize for this, and we'll do our best to make sure this doesn't happen again. You will also get to hear about my early career, and later on, how I broke into Rocket Internet after immigrating to Asia on a whim. You'll get to hear what early Rocket Internet culture was like, and why it was that way in the early days of big e-commerce in Southeast Asia before there was any infrastructure for e-commerce. After that, Kevin gets into my experience as a foreigner and expat in Asia and the complexities of having an American and Asian identity. One of my favorite sections was about failure and how I personally have dealt with major failures in my career and how to move forward. You will get a sense that I'm still processing a lot of failures often and trying to learn and grow from them. Lastly, I share a framework on how one can iterate their life or career when they are unsure of how to move forward. As usual, feel free to read the description and skip to the parts you like. Let's listen and dive right in. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin, and today on the show we have Alex Lee. Is it Lee? Lay. Alex Lay. So he's the founder and creator of Entrepreneurs of Asia. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thank you for having me today. So Entrepreneurs of Asia is a show for uh, founders, entrepreneurs, investors that are impacting and shaping the startup ecosystem in Asia. So today on the show, uh, we will talk a little bit more about the show of Entrepreneurs of Asia and the understanding who is behind the show, uh, Alex Lay. So um, Alex, a little bit of, about him. He was born in Morristown, New Jersey. Grew up in Rock Away, New Jersey. He moved to Asia in 2011, October, interestingly to Klang, which is coincidentally my hometown. And uh, he lived there for four months uh, before he moved to Vietnam in 2012. Um, when he was in Vietnam, he worked for a company called Rocket Internet, uh, setting up companies like Zalora, Easy Taxi. So just to start, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, Alex's journey later on in this show, and then also asking about the founding story of, of Entrepreneurs of Asia. So Alex, maybe just to, to start, uh, what's the motivation behind starting this show and um, you know, why did you decide to start this up? Okay, sure. Um, so specifically for Entrepreneurs of Asia, um, I had been now in Asia close to eight, nine years. Right, so I guess 2011. My my math is terrible. Um, I always think it's around 2012. Uh, so uh, I've been building startups and ventures and scaling companies in Southeast Asia region, um, you know, for a whole entire time. And, and I think it came to a point where you know I I had a very fruitful career in terms of you know big big scale companies with rocket internet. You know, I guess if you're in the region, you'll know Zalora, which is the fashion e-commerce company and uh, Easy Taxi, which, um, you know, in episode two, we kind of go over with Jun Chan, the, the whole story of Easy Taxi, uh, which was a big rideshare company, one of the largest in the world that probably no one knows about. Um, so that was, there was a big experience there. And then I did a lot of smaller startups and had a whole entire, you know, journey there. And, you know, this whole entire time, you know, it's, it comes to a point where, I started to think about, you know, what do I really want to do next and what's really important to me? Um, so, and I think for the past two years, I had been, you know, learning a lot. You know, if, if you're involved in startups and the entrepreneurship space, you have to be constantly learning and growing, right? You have to be always upscaling yourself. And one of the formats I kind of came across just, just by chance was uh, uh, podcasts. And it was uh, actually Product Hunt Radio, which is this uh, product website based in uh, Silicon Valley. And it's like this whole forum where they, they just, I guess it's similar to like a forum, I guess, where they, I, I don't know the website as well. I only know it through, through the, the podcast. Um, and then it's hosted by Ryan Hoover, which is, I think it was acquired later by AngelList, but had really 
great stories and great learnings. And then from there, I found other podcasts like uh, Masters of Scale from Reed Hoffman. Um, and then eventually, you know, Jason Calacanis with This Week in Startups. So these, these guys were eventually huge influences on uh, continuing my learning curve. You know, there's many things I, I would learn from, you know, Medium, Articles, uh, Quora, um, you know, YouTube, all these other kind of channels. I, you're, and you're reading books, right? And then podcasts was one of them. And I, I, you know, there's just, it was the only format content that was very specific. It was very different, you know, hearing interviews from people and learning from them. Um, and applied directly to what I was doing every day in terms of building startups, you know, and entrepreneurship. And, um, and I, and I realized like, you know, that this is a format that's actually missing in the region. At least I didn't know. I think there are a few other podcasts that have yeah. been going on for quite some time, but I had not come across them. Um, so either it just wasn't coming across my, my radar in terms of what I listen to or where it's accessible. Um, and also I, th- and when I did start to hear about these other podcasts, you know, I felt there was like a little bit of depth missing. Right. And the other thing that I realized is that, uh, when I talk to my friends in my network, you know, many of us are going on this, you know, crazy journeys of ups and downs. Uh, you, you were featured in episode one. So you share scaling your story from early days of hungry hippie to, you know, how does that go into, you know, scaling Airbnb? Right. And when we talk to each other and it's always like, you know, camaraderie of how do we help each other? And from this emerge amazing stories, uh, lessons, um, referrals for other candidates, hiring, what are the challenges of leadership? And I realized no one's kind of capturing this, these kind of stories, which are equally compelling to the ones I was hearing from Silicon Valley. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, it, it kind of in the back of my mind, I always would joke with friends for the past years. Yeah. I want to, I want to start a podcast. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and then it just kind of came to the point, uh, this, this past, uh, January where my previous job was winding down. You know, I was working for an angel investor, helping him build a company called Jetsbury. And I was thinking of what I wanted to do next. And I, you know, went through this whole period of unproductivity. You know, I was just not doing anything. And this was during the actual lockdown of, uh, the COVID spread, right? And then I was just like, just like, you know, I need to be doing something one day. So I, I just like stopped being unproductive. And I was like, what's the most accessible thing? I could just get a mic, uh, sit down with a friend and record it. And I just started contacting people. Like, you know, I tried to be ambitious and try to book six people in one week. Of course, none of that happened. I think maybe I got one recording, <laughs> which was you, I think. And then I guess that's how it was kind of born. You know, it's just, just by just trying it out and doing it. So uh, walk us through a little bit. Like what's the, what's the style of your your show or your podcasting like what goes behind the preparation and how do you select people and during the interview how do you actually you know how do you actually get a conversation started I mean, it's not it's not easy yeah that's that's a it's a very good point because um we're still in the early stages this is only i think this will be episode five when it's released technically it should be the the prologue so i'll label it the prologue um and we're still identifying that you know uh, and what I have been gravitating to is because, uh, so to answer one of your questions is, you know, how do I choose the people? Um, immediately for now, I'm focusing on friends because I feel a lot of my friends have made a huge impact in the region. Um, and if you hear a lot of the other entrepreneur stories of, you know, their own networks, there's a lot of people doing fascinating things that you just, um, you know about it, but, you know, it just never comes up again because they're your friend, Right. Uh, and so I, I'm just starting from my immediate network who I know either they have accomplished something big for the region or they're having a big impact. And in terms of the style and how I think about the podcasting is uh, I've been gravitating towards maybe understanding better uh, from a more human perspective, which obviously we'll start, you know, trying to understand them, the background of how they grew up, uh, what influences their thoughts from the early days. And then I kind of go through this whole profiling exercise of, you know, them jumping from experience to experience. Um, and I kind of been following that kind of format. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's many kind of formats and I'm not sure if anyone's doing this kind of format, but I, I, I you know, it's half biographical and then half very focused on, you know, startups, lessons, entrepreneurship, and, uh, you know, trying to distill, you know, in the moment, with the entrepreneurs, you know, on, on kind of these uh, ideas you can learn from. And at the same time, you know, maybe in the narration, uh, doing a little bit of analysis and talking about that as well. And that's kind of what I've, I just kind of, for the first, you know, for you, for the first one, I just kind of looked at your profile and kind of went through it. And then I realized as I kept doing the second and third episode, the same pattern kept emerging and I kind of enjoy it. You know, I've learned so many new things that I didn't even know about these, my friends. And it gave me a more nuanced understanding of how they tick and why they do certain things. And I kind of hope to illuminate that 
further in the future, either through the podcast itself or you know other materials like a, a follow-up blog or analysis of each episode and to distill further lessons by reading in between the lines of the journey of their childhood, right? And what makes them the way they are that allows them to be very successful later? And then while they're through that journey, what are those more of how-to typical things we hear from other podcasts? Like, you know, uh, how do you hire or how do you face hardship? How do you deal with conflict? Um, what's the right way to scale a certain business, right? Which we kind of hear through the stories at the same time, also by engaging in the actual questions themselves. Sure. I suppose it's also like finding the right balance, right? Um, especially with podcasts, the length typically are, the, the length of the podcasts are typically longer than content um, and yeah. trying to keep keep the audience engaged yeah so how do you find the right balance yeah so again still still early days still experimentation but for me and this is very selfish the way i kind of developed this product is that the podcasts that i've enjoyed are at least one hour or more right and it's long form and the purpose i guess would be the why the reason why i consume it is to actually get something one because they're engaging i most of the podcasts that i listen to very early on i'm probably smiling or laughing right they have something funny they're just good chemistry there's something about them you know it's either the host is really talented or the guest is just so damn interesting right um and so i prefer that long format and so i want to get more depth as well so if you want more depth, you're going to have to go a little bit longer. And what I tell my friends when I'm sharing the podcast is, you know, this is long form. Uh, it's something they have to split over a few sessions, either for you know, you're exercising, you're driving or whatever routine you have for it. And, um, you know, I don't want it to be too long where it becomes too inaccessible. And I don't want it to be too short where I don't get any depth. So I've kind of settled like, you know, air, you know, feeling in the wind, like I just maybe around one hour or one hour plus. Yeah. So um, before we get into talking about you, your journey, and hopefully we get in touch on your childhood as well, like you said, sure. um, you know, going into the depth of the, <laughs> the, the guests that you interview, right? So um, I'm, fortunate, I'm fortunate enough to be in this position, but um, let's let's just maybe to, to, to share about where do you see this project going? Where do you see Entrepreneurs of Asia going? Uh, what do you want yeah. to achieve out of this in the next maybe few years or uh, the, the rest of this year? Yeah, I know. I love that question because when I start people telling this, there, there's a few interesting reactions. Uh, these very uh, rational-minded type people who are very into kind of business, they'll be like, "Oh, this is you know, it's just a hobby. Oh, you're not going to make money, right?" And of course, there's the other side of people who's like, "Oh, that's just very interesting. Oh, I could learn a lot from this, right?" And then uh, there's other people who actually are closer to analytical and looking at the space and kind of also see what I see. There's there is a big potential in this landscape for this as a medium to grow. Right, I think uh, Ben Thompson, Ben Thompson from Stratechery has done a great analysis on the podcast landscape. Um, you know, Spotify has recently done a huge acquisition. Uh, these these are kind of things I didn't really think about when I started it, but it's only when I start doing it and I start to uncover, uh, you know, after you solve more problems in in the podcasting landscape that you realize uh, there is a much bigger opportunity. How how big it is, I don't know. I'm not too concerned about that. Right. The main focus is that if you want anything to be successful, whether you're building a company or you're crafting a product or a service, is you have to be very high quality content or high quality product, right? And so the main focus right now is trying to find that medium, like all the things you're talking about. Is this the right sound quality? Is this the right length? Is this the right um, format, right? And I'm really focused on hopefully over the next year, at least just really getting that, perfecting that down, you know, getting high fidelity to capture people get them engaged and to kind of spread it yeah have you got any feedback about uh, previous episodes yeah um yeah i haven't dug into analytics but it's interesting you know every time i launch a new episode uh, there is a spike in people actually listening to this and i use um, a platform called podbean um and it's to me it's just very obscure like i don't even know anyone who uses podbean but i'm sure it's it's one of the bigger recommended ones there's a few publishers right um so there there's after launch you're always getting downloads and it's um i saw the map geographically it's interesting you know like us there's quite a few uh thailand uh, indonesia malaysia singapore is much much more heavy because i'm here cuz i'm sharing them locally as well right um, but uh, so that's what I've seen from the analytics side. But in general, I'm sharing them to just friends. Uh, they say, "What are you doing?" Right. This is always a question when you when you leave a company. Everyone needs to know what you're doing next, and that's kind of one of the pressures of this world, right? Uh, being in a startup industry. And so I'll share them the podcast. And so some of the feedback is um, from entrepreneurs themselves. 
right? So, and those are kind of my target profile. Will they learn something? Will they find it interesting or engaging? Um, and you know, the, for the guys who are very detail oriented and very anal, they'll just be like, ah, oh, the sound quality, you know, the side's too soft. You know, uh, you got to increase this. You got to, you know, they want me to like literally go every single split second and make sure, you know, it's, it's, you know, perfectly balanced, which man, it's an art. It's very hard. It's a lot of technical work. Um, other people who, which I appreciate, like, they're giving me very good feedback analytically on what they thought about the format. Oh, I, I prefer, you know, where it's not so biographical. I just want you to get to the lessons, right? So that helped me understand that maybe in a narration or when I start to uh, craft the content, when I cut it up, maybe I could split it off to different parts and maybe tell people focus to go here if you're looking for this, focus to go here if you're looking for, you know, other content. Sure. Yeah. Have you, uh, I, I can't help but to ask this question being Asian ethnic. Have you told your parents that you're starting a podcast today? Do they know about this project? Yes, yes. Uh, so they, uh, you know, luckily, my parents are Asian, and yes, they they have a lot of those characteristics of Asian parents stereotypically that you think about. Uh, but interestingly enough, they they moved from Vietnam to America at a very young age. My mom was seventeen, my dad was eighteen. Uh, my mom, uh, technically, I guess, was a refugee. She left on the the day they they think the the commun- communists took over so vietnam was falling i think that same day and she was carrying her nephew on her back and she told me like bombs were exploding in the background uh and my dad was a student actually so he left i think before maybe a year before the fall of saigon um so they were very young students growing up in america so they have this very strong liberal american side to them and so i i I grew up very laissez-faire i had a lot of freedom um and so they've always been very supportive of whatever I do as long as I could take care of myself. I'm not asking for anything. I don't need money, which, you know, of course, if I, I need to, I could always go home, but it hasn't been necessary, thankfully. So I, I have told them I'm doing this. I've shared the podcast and my dad's given me some good feedback too. He, he found some of the guests very interesting and impressive, he said. So, and uh, the, my dad is always one to always give feedback. Uh, yeah. I really want to go, go into that, um, you know, a bit of your personal life uh, later but kind of want to navigate you're talking a little bit about your professional career first sure um, so maybe you know if you can share a little bit with, about your career journey right coming from uh, the US and then moving to Asia working for Rocket Internet uh, across different countries right um, and uh, of course built many businesses maybe share a little bit of high level on, on the last 10 years for you being out here uh, working outside of the US okay sure I mean so my, my journey begins in the US right so um uh, no, I had done a ton of internships, uh, kind of growing up, which I kind of helped frame, uh, my decision making. And, and I think the way I have approached, uh, my career decision making very early on has been very bottom up, as in like, I kind of like know what I want, what I don't like, what I like. Uh, and after each internship experience, you know, I, I then can redefine further down what I really want to focus on. Um, so I, you know, I had early internship at a hedge fund when I was uh, 17, 18, going into university. And then I had uh, an internship in banking in Vietnam for about four months in uh, HSBC. And then uh, then I worked for a think tank in Washington, D.C. These are all kind of things that helped shape that. Like, I just don't want to work for a bank, <laughs> you know. Um, I only knew the world of hedge funds, though, because that's my first really major job and experience, you know, being a te- tech analyst for a small hedge fund, $100 million fund, you know. I got in because a family friend uh, was doing this. And... Um, that's kind of where my journey began was that I, I was involved in trading. I was involved in investments and I just, from age of 17, 18, that's all I wanted to do because I was exposed to it early on. And so as I started going into university, it's like, you know, then I started doing the other internships as well. But then like, you know, the only thing that I really liked and appealed to me was this intellectual challenge of trying to, how to, how to tackle markets? How do you make money from markets? And how do you see the systems and how can you trade up, you know, set up a system so that you can actually profit from it? And that led me to my first business, which was a small investment company. You know, I, I raised money from friends and family to, uh, you know, back then, uh, being in a hedge fund was all the rage and that's what I wanted to be. So I had uh, friends from university. I started this my junior year in university. I raised money and we were trading while going to school. And this was in New York. So I was doing this for about two years. And this was eventually when things were ramping up. Uh, this was during the sovereign debt crisis. And uh, for our hedge fund or our small investment company, uh, it was focused on global macro trading, which was energy and currencies. And then uh, that's when the sovereign debt crisis hit in, in Greece and it wasn't so good. Uh, we made money while most of the funds in that sector lost money, but it wasn't like to my expectations. So I ended up returning that money. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? So I was like, you know what? Uh, let's let's see what's happening in Asia. So like on a whim, you know, I, I was dating a girl back then who was from Asia. She was still in studying in the UK, but I, I went to Asia first. And I was like, you know, I'll see what's out here. And I, I just, you know, just left America. I just packed up my bags, 
after thinking about it and I just jumped over to, to Malaysia because uh, that's where my girlfriend's family was at the time. So I was like, I'll just say hi because I met them the previous summer before for the first time. So what was going through your mind when you, you know, picked this country that was probably a little bit more obscure to you? Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, what, what gave you the courage to just, mm. just tick, tick off? Um, I had, so I had done a lot of traveling growing up. So I think from age 16, I'd always been traveling around. Even before that, I'd been traveling with my family from a very young age. Uh, 16 was when I was alone. So I, I did this kind of um, rotary, right? So this is a nonprofit organization that helps you do exchanges. So I did an exchange in Spain for a summer once. Um, and then you know, I just had a high exposure to traveling a lot. So that, that and travel never scared me, I guess, because I was from a very young age. Uh, when I was a baby, I was exposed to it. And then um, the previous summer before, the year before, I already went to Malaysia one time and I met the family. So it wasn't too bad. And what was in my mind wasn't Malaysia. I was going to move to Singapore. So interestingly, back then, 2011, Singapore really wanted to attract talent. So anyone with a university degree from an accredited university from like the West, UK, Australia, or America could easily get a one-year visa without any strings attached to go look for a job in Singapore. So I applied for this visa and I got it actually. And so my plan was I'm going to go to jump to Malaysia, just chill there for a bit, get settled in, and then I was going to look for jobs in Singapore. Um, of course, that, that didn't end up happening, right? <laughs> so uh, what happened was that I, I was living in uh, Klang, which is 30 kilometers outside of Kuala Lumpur uh, with uh, my girlfriend's family. She, my girlfriend wasn't there at, at the time. So I was living there for like three three months or so. Without, without your girlfriend being there? So yeah. Yeah, so I was living with her parents and her siblings. So uh, I was every day driving you know, her sister to... Yeah, to her, like, uh, they call it tuition, which is extra schooling, basically, right? And taking her to ballet, and then I had to do the lawn, and I had to paint the gate, helping the mom around the house, basically. How did that conversation take place when, you know, for this uh, boyfriend from, you know, all the way from America coming to Klang and living with the family? You know, I, I mean, I had met, I had met auntie, right, the, the year before. I, luckily, I think, you know, she had also raised her children very liberally. Of course, she's way more Asian and Chinese being in Asia, I guess, but still very liberal, I'd say. Um, and I don't remember the exact conversation. I just showed up and said, hi, auntie. You know, I'm sure like, you know, uh, my fiance now told, told her, her mother, like, I'm coming. She's like, okay. So uh, they probably picked me up at the airport. And then that was that, you know, no, no questions asked to Asian hospitality. Welcome to the family. Right. Yeah. So, and of course, you know, I, I can't just be a lazy bum and do nothing, you know, so I, I had to contribute in some way. This was more out of my own initiative, I think. So uh, from there then, uh, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to move to Singapore or look around. I was looking for jobs actually from Klang. And what happened was uh, one day, I, I was still doing trading too at the time. I was still eventually, I, was, I knew I was, I was probably going to wrap it up eventually, but I was still doing some, some small trading to make some money. Um, and then, uh, one, so LinkedIn was, was kind of becoming a bigger thing back then. And then I got a message on LinkedIn from the alumni network. Uh, so one of my years in my school and in university, I spent it in London, right? I, I studied at the London School of Economics and this guy was in the same network on LinkedIn. Uh, and then he messaged me looking for contacts in Vietnam because um, if you're in the same network, you'll see the same messages. And I, I told him I worked in Vietnam before. I have some contacts I could share to you because he was looking to hire for talent. So this guy is Daniel Evans, and he was looking to hire for Zalora at the time. And Zalora is uh, Rocket's first major project outside of, uh, you know, after Groupon and after, uh, you know, uh, they had expanded their fashion projects from Zalando, uh, Germany, which was their famous uh, fashion e-commerce in Germany, which, you know, within 18 months hit a billion in revenue, which, you know, even before Amazon was big. And then they expanded that fashion project to Jabong, India, and um, the Iconic in Australia. And so this was the first major global push for fashion. And they were looking to hire for this project. And I said, oh, okay, I can share the contacts. But, but then he saw my profile. And then he's like, uh, oh, it's an interesting profile. And then he passed it on to his boss. And then the boss kind of saw my profile. And he, we had a call. And then he just said, okay, why don't you just join us? I was like, okay, I'll join. <laughs> and that's how I joined Rocket Internet. <laughs> so walk us through what was the landscape of you know, startups. I mean, this was back in 2013, right? This is yeah. relatively new. Yeah. Um, majority of countries in Asia were still you know, run, run, run by cash. There was no e-wallet. Oh yes, you're right. Okay. It's not mainstream. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how was how was that how was that like for you? And, and what was going on in your mind when you decided to take this jump? And and how did your how did your first year went? Right? No. So initially, in my mind, I I still wanted to go to Singapore for hedge funds, and I told this guy, I was like, 
you know, if you really want me to come work for you, you're going to have to pay me more money. So, which is very ballsy. I had never had a job before except for internships. And I'm telling this guy, like, just give me more money. <laughs> and, I, and I wasn't asking, for, I was asking for like 30% more or something like this. And surprisingly, the tactic worked. So it's like, okay, hmm, this is actually a lot more money than I could, like, it's, you know, you have money now, or I could go pretend to work for a hedge fund in Singapore, which I might not know if I'm going to get this because, you know, it's a small industry back then still. And, so I was just like, okay, I'll just take a chance. I'm going to work for this guy for maybe one year, see how, how it goes. You know, and of course, that's not how it worked out. I worked, ended up working for four years, which feels like eight years because it's very, very hard and long. Um, so and that, was, that was my thoughts. You know, like, uh, I was just like, just try it out. You know, see how bad it could be. And I, and I think I told this story on, the, on, the, on one of the other episodes that um, it was kind of interesting because I wasn't sure if I wanted to take it. So I, I ended up working one month free. And that's how they tricked me. So it's like, okay, I'll try it out. So I was I was commuting from Klang to downtown KL every single day. And I was and back then I was wearing a suit, you know, I was in the finance world, you know, showing up to the startup company like in a suit. And I looked so ridiculous. And I was like, who's this guy? And why is he wearing a suit? Why is he so serious? You know? Um and so that's how I guess I kind of started with uh, Rocket Internet. Yeah. So I mean a lot of us know. Oh yeah. Sorry, yes, I forgot. The other part of the question um, was, what was the landscape like, right? Uh, I, I grew up in America with Amazon, so coming here was very jarringly different. Um, and I, I want to be inclined to say there was nothing, which is not true. There's this whole history of Southeast Asia of the dot-com time, and there are quite a few companies that were very successful and big, but it just didn't spread in the same way that Silicon Valley did, right? There wasn't... It, it could be a combination of timing and infrastructure, uh, talent, right? You know, I think since the 1800s to post World War II, Silicon Valley was just kind of primed for that. You know, they had this whole, this, you know, uh, the whole chips and everything, which eventually came to Asia, like in the 90s in terms of manufacturing, but the technology was developed in, in the West Coast. So I'm, I'm not too sure the history and why. Um, but I know it's just that, you know, they had, there were some people who had this degree of success and they're still around today, right? You, they're like the very super OGs, but, in terms of how we know internet now today, in terms of big e-commerce and these big brand names that were kind of developed in the past 10 years, there was like nothing, right? Uh, there was no infrastructure in terms of payments. Uh, very, very, okay. There was very little infrastructure in terms of payments. Um, there was no, everything was pretty much, pretty much run by COD. Um, people were afraid to put credit cards online. Uh, you had to educate everyone back then. You know, this was uh, late 2011, early 2012. And th- that was pretty much the whole journey of what Rocket Internet did. They spent so much money to educate the market, which was huge, which allowed everyone else to stand on those shoulders and continue to build. Yeah. So this was pretty much one of your first companies uh, right after? Yes, right after university, the first major one, yes. Uh, in your mind, I think coming from the finance world, you were more used to that idea of working right in finance um, and Going from finance to, to startup, uh, especially at a fast-paced company like Rocket, that must be a big adjustment for you. So what, what was it like uh, uh, for you to really adjust to their culture, uh, adjust to their pace? Uh, was it difficult? And uh, how did you manage to you know, be, be successful? Whew, yeah. Um, I had no conception of, of work or time, and I was still too green. Uh, I mean, I was, I was horrible at everything at first. Um, so when I first started in Malaysia, so this is when uh, I think Johan Sarani was the first co-founder from Malaysia and Howard Lee. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but, uh, they, they were in the office and I was just coming in to be just like the trial kind of guy because their boss said this guy's coming in. So, you know, show him the ropes, I guess. And, um, I just remember fumbling through everything. Um, like my first job was cold calling buyers from department stores and convincing them to join. I mean, you should have heard me on my first call. Like, um, hello? Yeah. It's like, you know, hello? Um, hi. Um, do you want to join Rocket Internet? It's Laura. They're like, number one, who are you? What are you introducing? Why are you calling me? What is this about? How'd you get my number? I mean, I was like, first few calls, I was shocked. And like, you know, I was like, you know, welcome to the real world, right? This is how you, you know, you got to do sales. But at the same time, every day you have your targets. You got to, you got to build this team fast, right? You know, cause you know, Rocket's all about speed and scaling. And so you have to get over that fast. You know, you, then if, you know, I guess it's kind of do or die situation. You have to act on the fly. You, you learn how to develop a script. You end up practicing. You kind of just get used to calling people and, and, you know, getting over that. And 
it just doesn't get, you know, the first days of, of your task of building a buying team was that. But then it gets worse. Oliver Samuel decides to come visit. So Oliver Samuel is the founder of Rocket Internet. He's like a billionaire now and uh, crazy successful in terms of what he did specifically in terms of scaling around the world. And um, what he does is that he'll, he'll tell you last minute I'm coming and he wants you to line up like 50 interviews for him the next day. So you're all up night calling, pulling the strings of everyone you can, scrambling to make sure like, you know, everything's perfect before I'm coming in. Uh, it was for him to interview people to get things kicked off. I think he was looking for, I mean, so he brought his whole entourage and his entourage will un- interview different types of uh, profiles and founders, but he was looking for the co-founders, I guess. And I guess I, I was on deck for that position of co-founder, but I had no clue. I didn't know I was. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I interviewed him for, he, I mean, he could judge you in a few minutes. I interviewed him for a few minutes. He knew that I was very green. I didn't know what I was doing. So it's like, okay, you know, he did some hard problems. I, I tried building my own company in an in investment world and he said, okay, give this guy a position of EIR, which is entrepreneur in residence, right? So, and then I guess that's how I got my official position, which would be used to, you know, I would be deployed to different ventures to help, you know, launch it and scale it basically. Yeah. So, I mean, we all, we all those of us who are familiar with Rocket know their culture. Yeah. Like, um, famous or infamous. Yes. Being uh, fast-paced, ruthless, um, and, you know, all that. What do you, what do you, I guess you've been in there for four years and you were, you were inside that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming out of it, I'm sure you've learned a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you simply describe Rocket's culture? And do, do you think it was, you know, do, do you think it was necessary for them to have these values to, to build um, their businesses? Uh, what are the downside, upside? Yeah. I like this question a lot um, because uh, you have a very contrasting experience working for Airbnb, right? And it's almost their antithesis of each other. Um, So there's a few questions there, right? Uh, What is the culture like? And, you know, I have a tendency to look back at my time with a lot of nostalgia. So as a human, you tend to forget all the bad stuff and remember the impact it had on you and how it it defines your character and what you're doing today, right? But the truth is, you know, when you're going through it back then, man, it was just painful. Like we were, you're giving millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars for young guys to invest and no one knows what they're doing. Um, And every day, you know, between functions, you're just literally fighting each other. You're screaming at each other, a very toxic culture of, uh, you know, what's right to do and how do you prioritize this uh, and that that is probably um coming from the ruthlessness and the, the need to to really get something done right and this is the rocket culture is to be very aggressive to move fast to execute uh and to do things very efficiently and measure everything to be very data driven uh, to communicate across all the learnings all the time right and so these are kind of the things that rocket internet kind of focused on and you know, if you have to really take a few steps back because people are in the thick of it saying, oh, these are just bad things in general, uh, the negative sides like being aggressive or, um, but it was a function of probably what the founders needed to achieve. And if you think about, I don't know the real reason why, um, but, you know, Rocket Internet probably was, you know, partially made to attack a specific type of opportunity in the market, which was an arbitrage opportunity that would disappear fast, right? Uh, tech could easily be replicated at some point in time. So I guess what Oliver Samware and the brothers wanted to do was trying to grab that opportunity as fast as possible. And I think that hypothesis tends to hold true because at some point, you know, maybe five years later, the guys who were hired for Rocket Internet are doing it better than Rocket Internet themselves now. And that kind of model does not need it anymore. But in order for, you know, the Samware brothers to capture, you know, billions of dollars for themselves, they needed to move extremely fast and to be aggressive. So at the end of the day, it was very necessary to achieve that specific goal in the end. Now, of course, there's a lot of benefit to that. You know, you, you are able to make a huge mark very fast. Of course, the downside is that, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of misalignment, a lot of miscommunication, a lot of young guys, a lot of friction, a lot of yelling, a lot of aggressiveness, a lot of chairs getting thrown around. I've seen a lot of crazy things at the office, right? It's just insane. Um, so, I mean, there's good and bad, uh, but if you put it in the context of the goals, you know, and it was very necessary, then I'd say. If, uh, if, if there's, if there's someone who comes up to you and asks for advice um, before joining a rocket company, would, would, you, would, you, would you ask this person to, what would you say to this person? It's happened many times, um, early career, mid-career, and even now to this day, there are still people who are interested and uh, it's, it's very different now. Early days, uh, Rocket was not a public company yet and they had an IPO'd and there was a lot to prove. Right? I think um, 
You know, Zalora was a moderate success to a degree. I think some of the other parts of the world fashion is stronger. Uh, Lazada was a, you know, on paper in terms of name. I don't know about in terms of returns was a quite a good success as well. Right. Um, and as, as you see the different growth stages from early stage of that early crazy aggressive days, what was needed to get done, you know, to really make it happen versus now it's maturing to a very big company. And of course, Rocket is not really a part of them anymore. They, they, they you know, their, their majority interest gets smaller over time as they introduce new investors and new rounds, right? Um, so what happens is, you know, these companies are forced to find an identity and to kind of find their soul. Uh, they have to kind of grow into becoming a proper company, a prop, you know, a, a well oiled machine that can become profitable over time and endure, right? Um, so what would I tell people? It really depends on when you were joining, right? In the past, you know, they were looking for specific types, you know, consulting types, because uh, it it's a very aggressive um, environment. You're expected to work long hours because, you know, this opportunity was shrinking fast. So they, they needed people who are used to that, which were, you know, management consultants or investment bankers, right? And um, I guess later on now, a lot of things have shifted. I think Rock Internet is still actively investing, uh, but there have different kind of models where they offer actually more equity now. Um, and I guess their approach is a little bit different because they realize they cannot compete under the old business model that kind of worked anymore. Uh, the advice I would give them, I would definitely say try it out if there's nothing else going on for them. There's there's always other options. You could either try doing it yourself. You could try to find another well-funded startup. And if you have another no other opportunities, then sure, try it out. You know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong. You just have to understand the caveats of um, what they're strong at and what they're weak at, just like any other company, right? So if you're joining... Uh, I don't know, Google, Facebook, they have different strengths and weaknesses. If you're joining Apple versus Facebook, you know what, or Google, right? Uh, Google and Facebook are very ads driven. That's their business model. And that defines the culture. Apple is about making products, right? And they don't need, they don't have the same DNA because of that. And you have to understand the strengths and weakness and that's it, right? And the question is, what do you want to get out of it? And that's what I will tell people to think about. And if their goals can align and say, go for it, you know? And of course, I'll make a, an introduction to see if anyone could help them get in. Yeah. Sure. You know, um, being coming from the U.S. Uh, and working in Asia, I'm really curious to, to hear from you, right? Because you've, you've worked in uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, right? Also for mm -hmm. taxi, um, and uh, of course, being ethnically Vietnamese, you have some exposure or some context or, or knowledge about the culture, the market. Um, what, what was what was difficult about? Uh, working in Asia, right, as a Vietnamese American, and and would you compare yourself to your peers from the U.S. who moved to Asia, uh, and say that you've been relatively more successful than them? Do you see, uh, you know, good examples of people that fit in well, or examples of people that don't really fit in that mm -hmm. well? Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I I think my experience might be unique, so. It's not like I moved to Asia and found it jarring. In fact, I found it quite opposite. Uh, even though I am in Asia, I'm probably one of the most minority. I'm specifically Vietnamese, Vietnamese American, which makes me a foreigner already. And I'm not ever going to be like part of any culture. If I go to Vietnam, they say I'm American. If I go to America, they call me Chinese. Like, I'm in Malaysia, I'm Chinese, right? It's just like, I'm always a foreigner. But interesting enough, in terms of because I look like you in the majority, uh, well, in Malaysia is a minority, but just because I look Asian, right? Uh, you won't get treated any differently. Um, maybe unless I open my mouth, but right, you know, like, so it's a very different contrasting experience growing up in America where, you know, you're very acutely aware of being a minority when someone makes fun of you for being different. And of course, that affects your identity and stuff. So, um, it didn't, you know, it felt almost more natural being back here, even though I'm the most foreign. It's, it's very uh, contradictory, I guess. Um, is there anything that's been challenging or different? Um, no, I, I, I think that it's very hard to say because I only had a very short experience in America. Most of my career has been all Asia, actually. So uh, I'm inclined to say what I say is very Asian-specific. Probably is also just very also human-specific and American-specific too, right? You know, like um, young people don't tend to think for themselves, you know, because of the culture. I, I bet you I could find millions of young people in America are probably the same, right? So, but I, I often have this kind of like thoughts. Um, and, you know, in terms of anyone coming over, I don't think Southeast Asia has this problem versus North Asia. And I found this very interesting as I started to travel to China more, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, is that the expat population in Northern China has this kind of weird issue where, if you're an ABC American born Chinese going there, they look down on you because like 
you think you're all that shit. You're you know coming from zero to hero, and um, you know like uh, you're kind of like you think you're better than us. Like who are you, right? And in Southeast Asia, I kind of never experienced that. I don't know if it's because of my bubble and my network, but I don't see that kind of problem. You know, if I'm American Vietnamese and going to Vietnam, it's like oh, so what? You're so you're American, but it's not like. There's this animosity. I feel like in North North Asia, there's this big animosity of of uh, expats and this kind of dynamic of what you're talking about. Like you're coming here and what are you doing? Import exports. Like who cares, right? But at least my experience in Southeast Asia has not been like that. So I found that very interesting. It could be homogeneity of Southeast Asian countries. Could be, could be, right? And and it could be a fact that they are accumulating a lot of wealth now and are having identity issues of themselves, right? Um, Of, you know, this is who we are now. Like, uh, you're not better than me, which I guess uh, Asia is still growing. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess the wealth is not spreading as much maybe though. (laughs) So Alex, tell me a bit about, you know, I I love this question because it always shows people the low low point of being a builder or an entrepreneur. Um, What's been your lowest point of your career, right? The point where you felt like everything is just not going as, as the way you want it. Mm. And, uh, you know, borderline feeling like you're going to give up or even have given up. Um, and then what's that light at the end of the tunnel for you? you know, in, in, in your last seven, how, how long has it been? Eight, nine years. Eight, nine years, years yeah. Working here at a high pace. And- um. Man, there's yeah, there's there's so many times. I mean, the thing that people don't realize about entrepreneurship is that it's just it's just a lot of pain, <laughs> uh, and you have to be able to have that uh, grit and endurance to kind of go through that. Um, some of the low points, you know, like uh, failing in rideshare when it should have been a win, uh, failing the team, you know, like you you really let everyone down. Um, even specific cases within those teams when certain dynamics don't kind of work out. I remember like an easy taxi, uh, my, my co-founder for, for Vietnam, you know, he went off to start the Hanoi office and then later I inherited the office and the team that he did. And man, there was like a lot of mismatch of culture and communication that caused problems. Like it's moments, uh, even in my last company where there's, there's breakdowns of misunderstanding that challenge your leadership. Uh, it questions you as a human, like, are you doing the right things? Are you really a good person? Uh, when you let people down, you know, that's, I think that's the hardest. Um, I guess maybe I'm more, I, I, I appeal more to the human side of, uh, you know, the venture scaling. And I think that's really critical to kind of get that right uh, culture and getting everything right. Everyone rowing in the same direction to make success happen. And I get very invested in the people. And then when you land, let them down. And those are moments when like, you know, you can't make everyone happy. That's for sure. But at the same time, you know, uh, there are times, you know, you feel like you really just messed up a lot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, how do you get back from that? I mean, there's, there's, uh, and everyone's different, right? So I guess the, the immature thing is you bury it and you just go on to the next opportunity. You kind of don't have any learning from it, which is really bad. But what happens is that over time, you look, reflect back on it eventually. Or even, even in the moments when, as you get older, you're more mature, you start to reflect on it more immediately. Uh, and then, you know, you either, for me, and I, I have interestingly done some interesting exercises where if I felt there was like a unresolved conflict, I will actually go out and reach out to the person and, you know, like try to at least close it. If, even if they don't agree still, or if they don't like it, and that helps you kind of process and move forward. Um, but sometimes it takes years. I, I remember all my close friends from Zalora now, like, man, we hated each other, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Justin Ang. Uh, the buying MD, uh, Daniel Evans, just calling people stupid all the time. And, but now like we talk, like we're friends and we think of all the good times, you know? Um, and that happened with almost every venture I built. Actually, now I think about it, there's just like some conflict that's just so ugly. Like, you know, humanity rears its ugly head when you're trying to get people to do things that have never been done before with high uncertainty. Right. And. Uh, so like, you know, dealing with, I talk to them, I guess now I actually, I even asked them this question, like, you know, what could I have done better? I'm sorry. You know, I was like an asshole. This is my experience of you, you know, this, and then they will reflect like, you know, yeah, I was immature, this kind of thing. So that that's part of it. Like, you know, self-therapy, the, the other parts is just really thinking about it and trying to think about from the other perspective of the other people. And this is very, I guess, related to conflict because that's what's been bothering me, I guess. But um, in general, what you do is just, you have to kind of just move forward, put one foot step forward at a time, hopefully capture the learning so you don't repeat the same mistakes and make it better for the next time. Yeah. That's great. I like what you said earlier about um, when you put people together to work on things that, never, that has never been done before. Yeah. That's, that's, like, that's exactly what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, if you are, if you didn't work in uh, you know, tech businesses or startup, do you know what what would have done? Oh man, the 
my whole life I thought I was going to be doing different things and they're just all wrong. Uh, growing up in, in like, uh, before high school, even during high school, I thought I was going to be in music. You know, my whole life was just music, music recording. I was in band, I was in all kinds of bands, symphonic band, jazz band, marching band, uh, band geek. Um, then I got really interested. I mean, at one point, then I realized I w- you know, music wasn't going to happen. Well, okay, sorry. Before high school, I thought I was going to be an architect. You know, I, I, and then I took my first drafting course in freshman year high school. And I, I re- someone told me that you needed a lot of math. I wasn't good at math. So I was like, oh, fuck, I can't become an architect, which I shouldn't have listened, I guess. But that made me move on. Then I thought I was going to do music. And then, you know, I'm, then I was really in university, deeply involved into philosophy. I went to Fordham University, which is in New York in the Bronx, uh, also has a Manhattan campus. But uh, they're more well-known more for like theology and philosophy. It's a Jesuit education. And that's like the only class in univers- university where I really got A's, which was all, all philosophy, like deep thought, questioning, uh, you know, essays about philosophy. So I, I thought I could do something like philosophy or along the lines of like this. Um, Art was another option as well. You know, on my last year of university, because it's liberal arts, I took a, a painting course. I got really into painting, so I started. I, ever since you know university, I've been painting as much as I can every year. Um, so you know, like I think one common theme from my youth till now is I always like to create things, and I kind of forgot that. You know, when you are building a company, you are creating, but there's so many other moving variables. You kind of forget the actual connection of you know the hands-on dirty that because uh, building a product, you need a lot of people. So it's not like you finish a painting yourself, right? And, and you know, I guess doing podcasting, I realized, you know, I, I have to be the one editing and doing it. And I, the whole creation part kind of came back. And yeah, that's, uh, what was the question again? <laughs> uh, what would you add I, I guess you gave a few examples. Yeah, yeah, like, okay. Uh, you know, you, I guess there are many, many options for you. I mean, I yes, think you can always yeah. go back into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I, those, are, those are kind of options I, I thought about, but um. And eventually it transformed into, of course, investing and trading. That world still fascinates me. Like I was highly fascinated about hedge funds. I studied all the hedge fund manager profiles back in the day when it was like the golden age of hedge funds. Um, all the famous guys who are like, you know, made money during the financial crisis and the kind of thing. So, um, you know, the idea of, of running a hedge fund is nice, but I, I feel that I have been better at building companies than I would be at maybe executing trades. So, um, Another possibility could have been in the investing world, I guess, but uh, I think I kind of found what I enjoy doing. So this is a good segue to talk about your personal life. So you mentioned earlier about being in music as a as a kid in high school. Actually, I only found out about this recently from Alex. Like he sent over a couple of photos from his days having you know, long hair, long <laughs> um, and uh, you know, tell tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like, right? Living in a small town in New Jersey. Uh, and then, and, and, uh, you know, relatively Caucasian yeah. white town as well, right? No, it was all white. It was all white. Right? I mean, a very small percentage of, of uh, Asian people. And, uh, and the, I guess the next town over was uh, primarily Hispanic. But yeah, yeah, it's still a minority, right? A small town America. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it is. I, for me, from my context of growing up, it was very boring. Um, but of course, I did a lot of crazy things actually growing up because I think it was so boring. You're, you're forced to be creative when you have, a, you know, behind your house is a full forest and, you know, uh, the closest place you have to do is you have to bicycle around or skateboard around, right? So I was, I got into like, you know, those kind of things. I was into heavily into skateboarding. I, I was into, you know, playing in the woods. Um, I was into, you know, Jackass was very popular back then. Jackass, the TV show where they do crazy stunts. So my friends made a ton of videos of us doing stupid things, basically. Uh, those videos are still floating around the internet. We lost a few, but if you could find, I mean, if I could find them, they're very, uh, very interesting how we spend our time doing a lot of stupid, crazy things. I'm, you know, I'm kind of amazed that I, I got out alive throughout my teenage years, you know, just <laughs> jumping off buildings and doing flips off things. And yeah, so, um, growing up was very normal middle class. Uh, everything was taken care of. My parents, uh, even though they were poor immigrants, they had done very well for themselves. My my father got his PhD in biochemistry, worked in big pharma for 30 years. Uh, my mom had a lot of jobs bouncing around early on, but she found her stride as a relationship manager banker. You know, she was top sales in a region for, uh, you know, consumer banking. So uh, did eventually quite well for themselves and they provided a great life for me and my sister enough that I could afford middle-class thinking. I have time to be, you know, ask silly questions like, why did you pick New Jersey, mom and dad? You don't pick, you know, when you're a poor American, you don't pick where you go. You just go where the opportunity is, right? And so um, very comfortable life. And, I, you know, of course, being too comfortable wasn't good. It made me very lazy. I was a very average student. I wouldn't say poor student, but I was very average. Um, some things I could do very well in. Uh, but uh, in general, it's just, you know, it didn't, 
instill the, the, the hunger or need, I guess, um, to kind of, uh, you know, just drive for success very early on, I guess. And I just f- indulge in their creativity and enjoying life kind of like, you know, like uh, an artist, I guess. You want to just do things and see how the world is, you know. And I know this happens to some, you know, second generation Asian American or, or even if you're an ethnic minority in the U.S. to kind of trace back your, your roots, right? I mean, coming from, uh, you know, I, I do have a few cousins in, in, who lived in the U.S. And mm. They've always wanted to know uh, about the families back in, uh, you know, back in Asia. Um, I wonder what, what it was like for you. Like, did you always have that urge to want to go back to Vietnam or meet some family members? Mm. Or uh, kind of just want to understand the history or the context of your parents, mm. what your life have been. So growing up in uh, suburban America in a very uh, white Caucasian town uh, that you know heavily influ- influences you. you, you take up a lot of what they call you banana, right? So yellow on the outside, white on the inside. I was very much like that. So, and that affects your identity. Um, and growing up, then you don't think about it. You're very American. I'm just going to be in America. My context is America. You know, uh, you kind of want to reject who you are as a minority because people single you out for that. You know, so that's kind of what it was early days. Um, I only started getting interested in Asian culture more so when I went to university. So in my sophomore year of university, I just I joined this uh, Asian club called Ace Asian Cultural Exchange, and, um, and in Fordham, it's predominantly uh, mainland Chinese, uh, Hong Kong, and uh, majority Filipino. So I ended up hanging out with these Asian people more, right? And that's my sophomore year of university. My freshman year of university, I hung out with all the bros, all the dudes. Uh, we were on a, a camp. We were on a dormitory across campus from away from the other freshmen, and it was just like all guys in this floor. And it was just you know typical bro culture, drinking party, and you know I, I could kind of get that, but I, it never really clicked with me until I started hanging out with the sophomore year with the Asians, and it felt more natural. Um, and prior before that, actually, you know, in high school, um, I started going back to Vietnam more on trips to visit my relatives in Vietnam. My first experience when I was seven years old. So I had some very vague memories of what Vietnam was like when I was seven. And then there's this whole gap from seven to high school. And then like, you know, I guess 14, 15, 16, I started going back almost every summer to Vietnam. And I started connecting with my cousins because they were getting older. And then we would chat on Yahoo Messenger, MSN Messenger, which that was a thing back then. And I would learn Vietnamese that way. I read half a book of intermediate Vietnamese and I started just chatting, right? And so it was through, you know, eventually getting exposed by going back to Asia to see my family. It's more like family trips at first, just see what it is. And then you experience the culture and your, your mind broadens, of course. Um, and then uh, eventually to the point where I started hanging out with other types of Asian people in university. And probably the most defining one was when I did my study, my year abroad in London, because the London School of Economics is just massively international. It's all international students from around the world. And I made even more friends. Um, in Vietnam, I mean, sorry, in, in London, though, uh, I was able to hang out with Vietnamese people because they had their own like kind of Vietnamese group. So then I was even further exposed to that. Um, so it's kind of this journey, I guess, of small exposures to new things. Um, of course, it being traveling first and then my cousins, the family dynamic. And then, um, you know, a stronger Asian identity emerges eventually. And, and then you start to question, wrestle with it a little bit. And then um, it culminates me moving to Asia. And then I finally realized like, oh, you know, it's very interesting. That I feel more comfortable here at s- for social aspects, I guess. Of course, deeply, I'm still American. They, they indoctrinate you very well when you're young. So what does that mean, being American? I mean, I guess that definition is somewhat evolving. Uh, yeah, right? It's, but what does it mean to you? When you're young, it's... it's and, and I guess you kind of see this in other Southeast Asian countries too. And Malaysia is unique in that the colonial history has kept... The ethnicity is separate. But if you go to Thailand or if you go to Indonesia, they're, they're not, they have mixed a lot, but there are different ethnicities like Chinese, Thai, um, there's Chinese Indonesian, but there's no distinction in the language and they just call themselves Indonesian or Thai. But here in Malaysia, you know, you are Malaysian, of course, there's this layer, but you know, you're still very much Chinese, you hang out with Chinese. Some people will mix, you're Indian, you're Indian, right? Um, so there, there's kind of that. But being American is like, uh, well, the, the the liberal theory is that it doesn't matter where what you know, race or creed. If you're an immigrant, once you're in, you're in the club. You're you know you're American, right? You know you know USA, right? USA. So, um, and they that kind of is just how you're raised. And I guess whether we realize it or not, you know, at the institutions they reinforce that really well. I can still say I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, right? I know the whole thing, and um, 
that's the the pledge of allegiance you have to say in school every day and before school starts and uh you know just the idea of being very american it's just in the culture i guess um so which is very interesting for my other friends who are like british malaysian she calls herself malaysian even though she grew up her whole life in the uk all right they don't have that strong sense of national pride which is maybe something very american or other countries have that too right um, they have like, you know, Koreans are very proud to be Koreans. I mean, Chinese too, I guess, right? So I guess that's what it means to be American. It's just uh, embracing that culture, growing up in it. And it's a huge part of your identity. I guess if you have been really properly indoctrinated that you won't let go. And I just, I just can't let go. You know, my family is all there still. Um, the idea of going home is always appealing, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I embrace my other aspect of me as being Asian too. So not to go into the specifics of what's going on in the U.S. right now, but being away from home, how do you view things that are shifting right now in the U.S.? Do you feel oh, uh, you know, less and less American or maybe maybe more? Uh, what, what's the sentiment for you? My feelings of American really don't change. Uh, I kind of like ask my dad, are you still Vietnamese? He says, I'm still Vietnamese. Of course, he's still American too at the same time, right? Uh, you, you can take the boy out of Vietnam, but... Uh, you can't take the Vietnam out of the boy, whatever it is, right? Um, same for me. It's just, it's quite constant. I, I think every country needs to keep growing and evolving. And sometimes you go back, sometimes you go forward, but it doesn't really change how I feel as being American. Um, it's very surreal though. I even talked to my sister of what's going on now. She says it's surreal being there. Uh, watching it, watching the past eight years unfold in America is just very weird. It's like watching your own country not being there. Like seeing, you know, Trump get elected and all these other changes, the first black president and um yeah, it's like being at a distance. It's it's a little bit weird that you have to watch it and not live it. Um uh, but at the same time it offers, you know, interesting perspectives because you'll hear how other people feel in this region about it too. And some people don't even care. That's not even their life, right? The context, which you realize, you know, America's just not everything, right? So So talking about what an American is doing in Malaysia, right? Mm. Um, moving here and moving here for now fiance uh, and spending you know, the last few years uh, I guess quite permanently based out of here probably even the next few years I don't know what your plans are but how's it like been how's it been like living here in Malaysia and what was what surprised you um, about this country uh, how did you feel how do you how do you feel about living here or uh, you know uh, the people the food the mm-hmm. culture what's 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 your perception of it yeah. after being here for a while I mean, it's not very fair, right? Because I guess I have exposure across 10 years and, and my uh, fiancé is Malaysian. I've, I've been with my fiancé for about 10 years. Um, so I have a lot of understanding about Malaysia. Uh, but I, I guess Malaysia is very, very accessible for expats. I think the default is to think about Singapore. Um, but man, the context is so different for Singapore versus Malaysia. Um, Malaysia is very comfortable. It has everything you're probably familiar with in terms of the modern world, all the brands you might recognize, McDonald's, Starbucks, whatever, right? Um, The cost of living is quite good, right? It's affordable. Um, There are a lot of big opportunities, uh, of course, um, not as much as, you know, highly competitive place in America, uh, but it's, it's very easy to live in Malaysia. Um, You know, a lot of Malaysians live in Singapore. They're my friends and they kind of forget what it's like. You know, they eventually become very Singaporean over time. It's, just, it's a very specific mindset. You would know. You were in Singapore for many years, right? Um, but I guess contrasting, right? You come back to Malaysia, it's just, you feel uh, at ease, you know? Uh, but there's always this worry that there's no economic opportunity. But the truth is, I think it's a very resilient marketplace that can make things happen. You know, Malaysia is a country where they're, they're the first to do things in the world sometimes and have technology that's never been anywhere else in the world. Then some things are just also very backwards, of course. So it's like this mix, right? It's comfortable. You can understand it. Um, it's very accessible for expats because especially if you speak English, because especially in uh, Kuala Lumpur, everyone, at least in my bubble and circle, you can get away with only speaking English. Um, sometimes you get stopped by police. That's a little bit of trouble though. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like literally today. Um, yeah, don't worry. My, my road tax was clear. I'm a good citizen, right? Uh, so yeah, it's it's easy, you know. And to be honest, looking at other countries too, it's been really the same. Even though it's like Thailand, you could get away with English. Actually, what I what a lot of people don't realize in anywhere in Asia, you could probably get away just speaking English. Everyone's like, oh no, I have to learn the language. No, especially these days, all the young population. If you're in an urban center, at least, man, like China, I don't know about Japan or Korea, but like talking vietnam you're talking thailand you're talking indonesia a lot of people speak english right? and that, that really just makes everything easy so what would you say to someone who's thinking about moving to korea to, to malaysia right now or, or 
or their lives, um, whether for retirement or, or medical work, uh, is this still an option, uh, you know, viable option, or is it, is it still a good opportunity? Opportunity in terms of what? Uh, in terms of uh, career growth, right? Uh, mm. uh, you know, like like your your, your situation mm. ten years ago when you first moved here, and of course it's a very different place now. Yeah. Uh, and if you have another friend who's looking at you know uh, taking that leap, what would you what would you yeah. say? Then? I mean, there's there's two ways to look at it, right? One is you have an opportunity already waiting for you. Like uh, there's actually quite a few big companies that are super well funded. We're talking like hundreds of millions of dollars or at least millions of dollars. If you give the job, and I guess this is very biased because I'm coming from the startup space. Um, so I guess if you're looking to pivot into startups, it's a great place. Uh, if you have one of these opportunities waiting for you, uh, another way is like you could come here to start something yourself. And I think Malaysia is a great place as a testing ground. You know, um, uh, income for most families is a little bit higher on average than say, the poorer parts of Indonesia, Philippines, or Vietnam, right? Of course, the major cities are about the same probably, I guess. Uh, but it's a great testing ground, high credit card penetration uh, to test business, uh, e-commerce penetration, all these kind of things. It's a great place to test. And then um, depending on what you're doing, if it's venture scaled, you could always go to other, you know, scale it to other countries because it's so close. Um, that requires a little bit of local knowledge of each market though, which, you know, I guess is the downside. It's not like America or China. If I go to New York, California, I can scale the same product, no problem, right? That's why they scale so nicely and so fast. You know, blitz scaling works really well in that kind of sense. Whereas, uh, you know, so I think that's one of the greatest innovations of Rocket Internet. They could scale across so many different regions, so many different challenges, but still make it happen, right? So I must ask you this question because we are talking about Malaysia. Um, we kind of skipped this. What's your favorite Malaysian food? Oof. Man, you just ask my belly, right? It's getting bigger every year. Um, you lived in Klang for four months. You must, you must like Bakute. And that is my bias because. Yeah, yeah. Bakute is good. That's um, too many good foods. You know, if, if I had to choose to eat something very consistently every week, you know, it's got to be either like Malaysian chicken rice, right? Or or like a wonton mee. The very boring, typical stuff, right? Because, but it's like, it's something you can eat again and again, I think. Um, and Malaysian chicken rice is very specific. I guess it. it I guess it comes from Hainan chicken rice, but it's its own flavor, its own, the way they do it is just so good, right? Um, of course, there's other unique dishes like, you know, Rojak is really good. The one in Bangsar is best. So, um, what is a Rojak? Oh, man, it's like uh, this mix of these crispy doughy things, uh, crispy tofu, shredded uh, cucumber, and like this kind of peanut sauce. At first, your tongue is not going to get you, like like it or get used to it, but as you keep eating it more and more, you realize, wow, this is actually really nice, you know? So, um Man, pan mi. There's just there's tons of great food in Malaysia, and it's it's, it's all about the local foods that what you want to eat in, in, in Malaysia, right? Um, the same goes for Vietnam and Thailand. It's it's really just such a rich region of diverse food everywhere you go. So yeah. So I know I'm standing between you and your lunch uh, since we had to you know get this podcast done. Uh, so let's wrap it up with a few questions. So uh, you know, do you have any recommendations for books, essays, articles for your listeners? Yeah. So I, I guess things that have shifted your perspective in life. Okay. For things that have shifted my perspective, um, I just had just mentioned this article in, in the previous episode. Uh, it's an article written by Paul Graham of, it's called What You'd Wish You, What You'll Wish You'd Known. And this is an article he wrote for a high school speech, uh, for graduating class. And it's basically, um, a very good framework on how you should iterate your life, I guess in terms of career decisions. I mean, there's just so many pearls of wisdom that I'd use. And I, I teach this framework to all uh, people I, I might work with, my staff, colleagues, uh, senior leadership to help them kind of frame things. And um, I recommend everyone to read it. But 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 essentially, it, it boils down to a few things. You know, A lot of people in life are trying to figure out what they should do next. Um, and that's how I kind of started, I guess. Uh, I had this approach where I knew what I wanted partially, I knew I wanted to provide more opportunity than what my parents gave me. So if you could understand half of what you want, it's a very powerful filter to say no to things that come your way. Like, uh, do you want to be a poor artist? Probably not because I'm not going to give as many opportunities as my, my father gave me. I won't be able to pay for Fordham University because, oh my God, that is a very expensive private university. I'm surprised he let me go there. Right? Uh, so if my kid gets into Harvard and, and I don't have any money, right? so it acts as a very good filter. Um, that's how I kind of iterated life. Uh, kind of like looking at things that and trying to figure it out. And then then for me, it's just figuring out the other half of that. But what this kind of method that Paul Graham introduces is it's more very bottom up. It's like, you don't need to know what you want. You don't need to look about what, you know, 
uh, how, you shouldn't pick a point in the future and work backwards because the problem is you're limit, limiting yourself to that opportunity only. But the problem is in the future, so many things are created that you don't know about yet. You don't know what you don't know. There are certain things you can know, right? You can know that uh, to be a doctor, you could get an internship at the hospital and kind of ask a doctor what is it like. But the problem is you don't know what the future job of a doctor might look like, right? So his idea is that you should just focus on a hard problem and solve hard problems because hard problems open up more doors. And if you look at our past five uh, interviews of entrepreneurs, it's really a series of them solving hard problems, whether they do it intuitively or purposefully. And that's how they're able to keep finding success, right? So if you focus and look at your oper- your choice set of I could do option A, B, or C, which one has the hardest problem? Of course, then you need to qualify that, right? Uh, is it a hard problem that's in a rising industry? Is it a hard problem surrounded by smart pe- people who are smarter than you? Right, um, and you shouldn't have any fear of that because what, what he says in the article is that uh, we had this conversation earlier. Right, uh, people who are successful, if you look back when you were school with them, you probably just saw there's some some other kid who's stupid, right? But they all look the same. You know, like genius is an excuse to be lazy. So he's saying that you can do it, so you should do it. So you should focus on hard problems, and hard problems are not so bad. What's the worst thing that happens when you solve a hard problem? Man, you feel good right? There's a sense of relief. That's like the worst. But on the upside, man, you feel great. Like, you know, I did something amazing and it's not so bad after all. So don't be afraid of hard problems. Focus on the hard problems. And that allows you to keep opening up opportunities. You call it staying upwind. So if you're ever stuck in your life and you don't know what to do next, um, of course, I think self-reflection is important, but you could apply this framework. Think about, you know, what are your current options? Are there more options you could probably take on? And then which one is like solving the hard problem? And if you can eventually solve it, it'll get, get you further along. So do you have any message um, for those people out there who are currently solving these hard problems and people that you want to invite to this show potentially? Uh, any last messages? To you? Yes, 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 that's great. So um, anyone who has these great stories of solving hard problems or anyone who is in the space of you know entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship that, that, that can share these stories, I'm looking to talk to and interview um, get to know you better and hopefully, you know, uh, learn from each other, contribute back to the ecosystem. You know, one of your earlier questions was, you know, where do I see this going? And it's only come to me as I keep doing this, right? I told you I only want to build good content first, but, you know, I, I eventually, hopefully this can come to the center of the ecosystem for startups and uh, everyone plugs into it, you know, startups plug into it, founders plug into it, uh, people looking to get into startups, plug into it, businesses, investors, right? And it's a place where we continue to contribute and drive innovation from this region in Southeast Asia and Asia. So I'm super excited to hear or hear more from your future guests. Um, Alex, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak to the person behind Entrepreneurs of Asia. Uh, and uh, thanks for thanks for time. All right. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening. I hope that in this episode, you can get a better sense of what this project is about and where it's headed. Of course, we will need continuous help and feedback from the community so we can keep making this more relevant and higher quality. Usually, I would like to share reflections and some basic analysis at this point, but it's a little bit weird given I would be trying to talk about myself. But in general, I guess compared with the other guests we had before, I had early exposures to travel, attempted to build my own company very early on, and with a bit of luck was able to ride a big wave created by Rocket Internet. There's a lot more stories to be shared, but we can save them for another guest to help interview me further later on. If you enjoyed this content, please go to entrepreneursofasia.com slash podcast and give us the feedback or write to us at hello at entrepreneursasia.com and share this to social media. See you back here next week for another exciting episode.